morning again. Let's turn in uh, our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll be looking at the last couple of verses here, verses 24 through 27. Let's go ahead and open up uh, in a word of prayer. Lord, we rejoice again in just your continued providence and kindness to us. We rejoice that you are faithful and kind and pray that you'd help us to understand the passage in front of us for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes uh, I'll think about the early church and recognize that in many ways the difference between us and the early church is, you know, sometimes just downright shameful. Um, when they were talking about self-control and self-discipline, they were talking about it in ways that would radically change their lives, and in some situations, talking about it in ways that would put their head on a chopping block. We talk about self-control and self-discipline um, that's required to not look at our phones, And there is somewhat of a difference there um, between their day and our day. But since we are talking about it and we're talking about the phone, it can be a distraction for us. The average, I looked up, there were a couple of different studies. And so the answer to this depends a little bit on which study that you read. Um, But... Uh, I read that you, the average smartphone user receives anywhere between 46 and 75 notifications per day on average. So it can be plus that by a lot, depending on you know who it is. Um, let me give you another uh, statistic. Now I. This is, I think, fairly established. Maybe you can just think of it as anecdotal or whatever. But um, another statistic that I came across this week was that every time we switch tasks, it takes us 23 minutes to regain our concentration on that particular task. So do the math. If every notification on your phone costs you 23 minutes a day... (laughs) and you're getting 75-plus notifications per day. I haven't done the math. It's probably more minutes in the day. I don't know. There's a lot of minutes, okay? Uh, Even if that maybe is not characterizing everyone and you can rebound very quickly, and it only takes you one minute, one minute of distraction, one notification equals one minute of distraction. Uh, If you have 75 notifications, and that's 75 minutes a day of being distracted from what we're supposed to be doing. Now, my point in the message today and this introductory uh, remarks here is not to bash um, smartphone use in and of itself. I think that they are helpful tools, and tools are helpful if you control the tool instead of letting the tool control you. Okay, And so there is a place for that tool, and that's great. And we need to be wise uh, in the way that we use those things. Uh, But one of the points that I would like to make, as we're going to be looking at this topic of self-control today in the text, 
is that if we cannot control ourselves when it comes to the phone, what makes us think we can control ourselves in making greater sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom? Uh, If we are distracted by something so trivial and so small and so pointless, then, then why do we think that we can do what's necessary to muster up what's needed to live out the Christian life on a daily basis? And what if Perhaps, maybe, persecution comes our way. What kind of radical lifestyle changes are we going to have to make in regard to those things? If we cannot deny ourselves in the small things, what makes, we can deny, makes us think we can deny ourselves in the big things? And that is really, in many ways, what the passage is about in front of us. Paul says in the text today, rather pointedly, he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control. I discipline my body. I keep it under control. The foremost uh, man that we think of when we think about preaching on God's undeserved grace, the Apostle Paul, also says that I discipline my body to keep it under control. And so today's passage really is about self-control for the sake of the kingdom. It is really harder to be any clearer than that statement. He uses the the metaphor of an athlete. Uh, He admonishes us, so to speak, to put our hand to the plow and um, to complete the task assigned to us. He advocates in this passage hard work, discipline, self-denial, and pushing yourself and all of those kinds of things, exerting yourself for the sake of the kingdom. Now, before we get to the passage here, I wanted, as we're still kind of a little bit in the introduction here, to give you... Uh, a little disclaimer that I think all of us need to hear when we come to a passage like this. And this disclaimer is one that goes out to me as the one preaching the text. It's a disclaimer that goes out to you as one listening to the text. Um, and, And I would like to say that among the ways, among the list of ways that I as a pastor could go wrong in preaching a passage like this, um, two specific um, two specific ways that I could go wrong come to mind. And two specific ways that we could hear this passage or read this passage come to mind. Um, so let me give you the first of these two ways. In preaching this passage or studying it or reading it, I could be tempted to ignore the fact that this passage is given to us within the context of a whole Bible, okay? We have an entire Bible, and we believe that we should understand the individual verses and paragraphs and chapters and books of the Bible within the context of the whole. In other words, we're saying that the Bible does not, uh, the, the Bible is harmonious with itself, we could say it that way. This passage agrees with this passage, and so we have to understand them in in the context of the whole thing. So, we're we're in a passage today that is talking about self-control and self-discipline, okay? And so, other passages in the Bible remind us that Paul is not advocating asceticism. he's, He's not saying in our text today that the most spiritual Christian is the Christian that believes all the physical things are bad and we should just avoid all of those things. That's not what the self-discipline here is referring to. Um, So you you will not hear me um, 
apply this passage today, for example, by saying all the physical things are bad, throw away your phone and all this kind of stuff. Although maybe for some of you, the application might be to throw away your phone if you can't control yourself with it, okay? But I'm not going to give a broad application that way because physical things in themselves are not evil. They can be used that way. Now, can you you see how this error would be easy to commit? Do you see, you see how we can preach a text on self-discipline? Picture a pastor maybe preaching this text and saying something like this. You know, run, exercise self-control, beat your body, don't waste your time on the enjoyments of this world. You know, there was this one missionary one time and he just lived on bread and water alone. And so you should, you should feel guilty if you have anything else beyond that. And this, there was this other Christian that I know and he, he only owned two t-shirts because he wanted to live light and, and not Uh, be distracted and so you should do that too we all need to just own two shirts and that's all that we should own and and if you own anything more you should feel guilty about that the most miserable christian is the most godly christian right Can, can, can you hear how we can maybe kind of take these passages and 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 go in that direction when we commit this error we fail to recognize the whole context of the bible and specifically first timothy 4 where we read this Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is uh, received. Uh, if it is received with thanksgiving, and so we want to avoid this particular error. In other words, it's okay to enjoy a good meal. It is okay to eat. A bowl of ice cream. It is okay to sit on your front porch and drink a bottle of pop to the glory of God. Okay? We can enjoy these kinds of things in life. Now, on the other hand, there's another error that would be easy to commit, and that is one that uh, we all need to guard ourselves against. And I think this error if I had to take a guess at where all of us were, I think we would be more likely to commit this second error than we would be to commit the first error. Although there's always a mixture, you know. If I was a betting man, which I am not, I would bet that more of us would commit commit this second error than the first error when we look at a text on self-discipline. And what is this second error? It is the error of neutralizing this text, of removing its teeth, of declawing the text. Imagine a pastor preaching this passage and saying something like this. Yes, this passage does say we are to discipline our bodies, but we also know that God is forgiving and we really can enjoy all the things in this world. And so just focus on Christ and his love and you'll be all set. If you walk away today without feeling a weightiness behind the discipline yourself and beat your body, if there's no weightiness to that, then something is amiss. Something is wrong. We ought not to neutralize the passages in Scripture. The task before us, of course, is a difficult one. It is that I would be a faithful proclaimer of the word, and you would be a faithful listener. If I, or, or um, the goal is that I would preach this text, not my opinion, 
and that you would filter this through God's word. To be a faithful listener of the text is to listen to the text being preached with an open Bible. Say, is this what the text is saying? Um, And so may we be faithful as we uh, listen to this text preached today. It is possible for us as Christians, and this is a dangerous thing, it is possible for us as Christians to write off large swaths of our Bibles because we say, oh no, uh, God will forgive us. Let's not write off large swaths of our Bibles. Let's understand it in its context and how it applies to us. So let's read this passage together. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 24, we read this. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Uh, There's four verses here, and we're going to look at this in uh, four different um, headings. A dedication to the race, our motivation for the race, the strategy of the race, and our commitment to the race. In verse 24, we read this. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. It's pretty straightforward. There's one command in this verse. There's one statement here that we are to adhere ourselves to, and the command simply is this, run. run. It's not jog, it's not trot, it's not skip or walk, it is run. Running is hard. Running takes discipline. There are techniques for running, there are shoes for running, there are podcasts dedicated to running. There are people who run in the Olympics. There are people who run in all kinds of ways. And of course, we know that the Bible is not talking about physical running. The Bible is not say, okay, the application as we go out here today is all of you, instead of driving home, run home. That's not the application. It's not a physical kind of running. Um, It means uh, running the Christian life. It means that you, in the same way that you would exert yourself in running physically, you exert yourself in that same way uh, in living a life obedient to Christ in all things. What does the Bible say? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? Okay, go exert yourself in that. Don't just kind of, uh, you know, fall into it, but set your mind to it. Put things in place so that you can obey God easier. Uh, what, What do you need to do to do that? When you get home from work and you don't want to invest in your family, you should run, quote-unquote, and lead your family. When you don't want to share the gospel, you should run, exert yourself, do it anyway, that which is uncomfortable. You should conform your life to Scripture in all things. You should run. Furthermore, you should run in the same way that people run in a, in a race, which is an intent to win. Um... It's an intent to give it everything that you have, to strain yourself, to exert your body, to devote yourself to winning. Again, we're not jogging through the Christian life, we're running. He says, do you not know that all the runners uh, run, but only one receives the prize, okay? Now, we understand that he's not saying only one person is going to be saved in all of humanity, okay? 
But he's saying, run like that. Run, run like, that, like that person who says there's only one winner. Run in that kind of a way. Exert yourself in that kind of a way. Dedicate yourself to Christianity, to Scripture, to the Word in that kind of a way. We have, I think, as Christians, become fat and lazy. And again, I will say this, I will say this again, even, even though I said it in the introduction. Do not, and I repeat, do not invalidate, disregard, or nullify this passage in the name of forgiveness. Oh, I can be complacent because God, he'll just forgive me. This would be like the child that willingly, willfully disobeys his parents because he knows his parents are just going to forgive him in the end. Just do whatever I want. They're going to forgive me if I ask for forgiveness. Or, or this is like Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 where um, we can presume on God's grace. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Do, are, are, you, are you presuming upon God's grace and saying, this passage doesn't matter, I'm going to cut this out of my Bible, figuratively speaking, because of grace? God's grace does not does not give us the license to be careless or presumptuous. God does forgive, okay? We're holding these doctrines all together at the same time. God is gracious. God does forgive. I should not be lazy. I should not. All of this, it it agrees with itself. We don't have to say one or the other. Many, many years ago, someone finally clarified for us the debate between the relationship between grace and works. And so the results are in. In fact, this is so early on, so long ago, that it happens to be in our New Testament. In Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Okay, that, that's it right there. Okay. You don't say this talks about self-discipline, but God gives grace when he forgives, so I can just do whatever. No. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now, what does this mean for 1 Corinthians? It means you cannot coast, you must run. You cannot put cruise control on and just kind of relax a little bit. You must not presume upon God's grace and live like the devil, so to speak. Run that you may obtain the prize. Run with everything that you have. Now is the time to fight. Now is the time to run. Now is the time to engage in battle. And we can talk about all of the ways in which it is the right time to engage in battle. We can talk about it being the right time to engage in battle in terms of against my own flesh. We can talk about, culturally speaking, the cultural wars that are going on right now. The way that culture is being upended. Um, we, could, we could talk about all these various ways in which the battle, the time for the battle is now. We're in the trenches now. Now is the time to engage in battle. And that's exactly what this next verse reminds us of, except instead of using the illustration of a runner specifically, he now kind of broadens his illustration to athletes in general and gives us our motivation for this race that we are in. 
In verse 25, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This is our motivation. We have all of eternity to look forward to. We're not doing this. We're not living the Christian life because we get something that's going to rot. We do this because of eternity. One commentator expresses the logic of this verse and says, if athletes discipline themselves with rigorous training to prepare themselves to win a perishable crown, how much more should Christians discipline themselves to win an imperishable crown? Now, what is the type of discipline that athletes exercise that he is commending here? It is self-control. Everybody's favorite word. Let's park on this topic of self-control for a minute. That's what he says. He says every athlete exercises self-control. They exercise self-control for a perishable, and we do it for an imperishable one. Self-control is a Christian virtue. Self-control is something that we ought to be pursuing after. And so first... Let's connect this passage in front of us with the surrounding text. I haven't started off today with much connection to last week's passage or the passages from last several weeks, but I'm going to do that now. How does this connect to what we've been talking about? Does anyone know what we've been talking about the last several weeks? We've been talking about the conscience, right? We've been talking about Christian freedom, right? We've said that Christian freedom is not to indulge yourself and say, I have freedom now. I can do whatever I want. It's to serve others, right? That's what Christian freedom is about. And that is what we've been talking about in two whole chapters of this letter. The Apostle Paul has been dealing with the abuses of Christian freedom and Christian liberty, He has said, don't use your freedom to be self-indulgent, rather use your liberty to serve others. That's what we've been talking about. So what do we call that? What do you call it when you are allowed to do something, but you choose not to do it because you're committed to a higher cause? It's called self-control. So so all of that, that we've been talking about with Christian liberty and your rights Controlling that, putting a bridle on your own desires, is called self-control. And now he begins to talk about that here. We are to, to emulate this Christian virtue. Now, athletes do this all the time. Maybe you're an athlete and you're cutting weight for a competition, okay? And you're saying, I really want to eat that, <laughs> but I have to exercise self-control, Um, maybe you're in a race and you're on a certain diet, you have practice every day. Now imagine someone walks up to someone who's doing that, they're cutting weight or they're doing whatever, and they say, wow, I can't believe you are denying yourself all of this good food. What is, what is wrong with you? You know, and, and, and the person responds, I know I can eat that, but you see, I'm in this race. And so I'm disciplining myself so that I can succeed, so I can win in this race. The Christian 
looks at their Christian liberty, the mature Christian, sometimes immature Christians don't look at it this way, the mature Christian looks at their Christian liberty in the same way. So the Christian says, yeah, I know I can eat the meat offered to the idol that was sold in the meat market. Fine. So how do we respond as Christians when we get that same opposition, that same, you know that it's, you could just do this, you can do that. The answer is simply, I know, but you see I'm in this race. I, this isn't helping me to run. I, that's... I'm not saying that that's necessarily something wrong for you. That's that's okay. We're talking about non-sin areas, okay? But I'm trying to run this race, and this is distracting to me, and it's taking my mind away from where it should be, and so I'm just not going to do that. It is for this reason that we've made the observation before that sometimes people get confused at the difference between a mature Christian... And a weak Christian, because the weak Christian says, I, I, I can't eat the meat. And the mature Christian says, I can eat it, but I'm not going to. And, and so, so sometimes you say, man, they must be a weak Christian. Maybe it's they're just a really mature Christian, and they know this is not helping me in running this race. What helps you run well? Ask that question. What hinders you from running? Live, live accordingly. Again, to go back to the silly phone example, it, be willing to get rid of it if it's, if it's not helping you. Or, or temper the way that you're using or whatever it might be. We might say exercise self-control. Here's how the book of Proverbs puts it. This is a good verse to commit to memory. Um, Proverbs 25, 28, A man without self-control is like a city that is broken into and left without walls. Man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. It's chaotic. There's no security. There's no safety. There's no orderliness. It's just chaos reigns. Chaos rules. The person who has no self-control is the person who is ruled by his own desires. If you have no self-control, your desires rule you. So it's at this point that we want to make a very important observation. And that observation is three words. Which, not whether. Which, not whether. W-H-I-T-C-H, not W-H-E-T-H-E-R, which, not whether. What in the world are you talking about? The issue is not whether you will be ruled by something. The issue is which something will you be ruled by? It, you will never be exempt from being ruled by something. 
something will rule you. Something will master you. You believe that you are completely in control when you put that donut in your mouth, okay? But you're yielding in that moment, not commanding. I'm not saying you can't eat a donut, okay? Your body tells you that you have a desire that needs to be fulfilled. Your body is, your body is saying, that looks good. Your body is saying, I want that. Your desires are saying, that would satisfy me. And then you become the servant to those desires, and you say, I'll get it for you. And you do it. Right? Something, your desires are ruling you, okay? You believe that you're in control when you are scrolling what's been called doom scrolling, okay? You know what doom scrolling is? Okay, doom scrolling is where you're scrolling through your social media and there's no bottom to it. You just keep on scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling forever, 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 okay? You believe that you're in control when you're doing that, but your body is telling you that I need this fix or this desire, to be fulfilled. And so you yield. Say, I'll give this to you. Go, I'll do this for you. Biblical wisdom leads us not toward indulgence and license, but towards greater and greater degrees of self-control. One commentator says this, true knowledge then leads not to license, but to self-control. To self-control. Jim Berg writes this, a major distinction between adulthood and childhood is the cultivated habit of saying no to disorder. Self-control, then, is the ability to parent yourself. Okay? All of you, all of us, we need to be parented. Some more than others. We need to be parented. Self-control is not an absence of parenting. It's just self-parenting. It's, it's you being the mature one telling you no. You're telling yourself no. Okay? When you are a child, when you're a kid, you need a parent. You need someone outside of yourself to tell you that eating 10 bowls of ice cream is not a good idea. There's nothing wise about that. There's nothing helpful about that. Kids don't know that, okay? Kids think that 10 bowls of ice cream is a dream come true. They think that it's great and that it's wonderful. And that's why they need a parent to say, no, you don't do that, okay? Why do kids not know that this is a bad idea? Because children are ruled by their own desires. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness. Do you know what Proverbs 22 says drives that away? What, what drives it away? The rod of discipline. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen says foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of discipline uh, drives it away. Now you know why some adults act like children, but just in bigger bodies. Because they have never learned 
to self-parent. They have never learned self-control. They have never had the foolishness driven out of them, as Proverbs 22 says. This goes back to a statement that I've found somewhat helpful and have used it a number of times uh, from Lewis, where he says that desire is stronger than reason. Remember we've looked at that statement a few times, desire is stronger than reason. We might say, maybe slightly more in line with the text today, that passion is stronger than reason. You've got to master that. Self-control can be applied in numerous ways, and we could talk, I think, for hours upon hours of be self-controlled here and be self-controlled here and be self-controlled here. And so just a few thoughts and ideas here. We need self-control when it comes to spending our money, not being impulsive spenders, okay? Writing a budget and keeping the budget. Self-control is required in relation to food, to drink, to sex, to scrolling through Facebook, to surfing the internet, to watching cat videos, and I... Some, this is a problem for people, okay? Okay? (laughs) Some of you probably. (laughs) Okay. You're laughing because it sounds so foolish, but some people are stuck in this. That's foolishness. We ought to be be laughing at all of the other things that we're not self-controlled in. We need self-control in watching television, text messaging, watching movies, constantly checking email, whatever. Apply it as is fitting in your particular context. Some of us, I think the other thing too is that some of us think that we're self-controlled because we're really self-controlled in one area, but we're chaotic in other areas. So, you're really self-controlled when it comes to, to eating food, and you mock other people who are not self-controlled, but you will binge watch TV all night long into the late hours, okay? Do you see what I'm saying? We're, we're, call, we're, we're saying for self-control in all areas. We need to be self-controlled in, in, in every way possible. Now, um, this is slightly related to my opening Uh, comments, but maybe just to briefly address this to the critics who believe that teaching self-control at all is legalistic. I'm going to take you to a passage where the Bible puts self-control and grace in the same sentence, okay? The same sentence It puts them together. It marries them together. Now, the issue, the issue with legalism is that it distorts the relationship between the two. Okay? So, legalism ruins the relationship between grace and self-control and tells us that they relate to one another in a way that they don't relate to one another. Okay, but that doesn't mean that they don't relate to one another at all. There's an order to it. Okay, so they still relate to one another. Okay, where does the Bible use grace 
and self-control in the same sentence. Titus 2, 11 through 12. For the grace of God has appeared. Okay, that's the word grace, okay? Grace does something. Grace does not teach you to be self-indulgent. It says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's the one thing that it does, salvation, justification. And then it continues to say this. What else does grace do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live in what way? Self-control. And so the relationship is not if you believe in grace, you should not believe in self-control. No, it's grace is the path to get to self-control. Grace is the fuel that God gives to me that enables me to live self-controlled. Grace is that which instructs me or teaches me that it is wise to live a self-controlled life. See how they fit together? It's, it's hand and glove. It's not either or. It's both and. Furthermore, self-control is a fruit of the spirit. Gentleness, self-control. It's in the list. And we are commanded to add self-control to our faith, to be someone who exercises faith or trust or belief in Christ is to add self-control to that. Second Peter 1, 5 through 6. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with what? What am I supplementing my faith with? Not, not adding to it so that God will justify me in the end, but it's the natural outworking and consequence. Because I have faith, I should, I, should, I should also have virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. Goes part and parcel with it. Self-control is self-mastery. The one who exercises self-control is the one who parents himself, who says no to himself, who brings chaos into order, and one who is calm. I would venture to say that you can quickly identify those with self-control by looking around the room in a heated moment. Do this. The next time you're in a heated moment, work, home, whatever, and passions are up and people are tense, who's the calmest person in the room? Find that person. I would venture to say that you can quickly identify those with self-control as finding the person who is the calmest. If you want to learn self-control, go find the calmest person in the room and go follow them. It's not a hard and fast rule, but generally speaking. Okay. Those who do not have self-control, those who indulge their passions instead of controlling them, they are children. They are boys who never grew up into men. And because of this, we are not only to run, like verse 24 says, but we are to run with purpose and intentionality. This is part and parcel of what it means to be self-controlled, is that I'm being intentional. I'm thinking through this, not this, this, not this. Yes here, no here. Verse 26 gives us the strategy of the race. Uh, 
We are to run with purpose and intentionality. 1 Corinthians 9.26, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. If you're in a race, okay, if you're in the Olympics, you're not running up into the stands. You're not running into the middle of the field. You're not like running all in circle. You're, you're running to the finish line. My goal is here. I have to get there. And the shortest way to get there is here. And I'm going to do that. There's intentionality behind it. It's not chaotic. If you're boxing someone, two people are in a boxing match. You're in the ring there. Okay. You're boxing your opponent. You're not turning around and just hitting the air so he could hit you in the back of the head. Okay. You're, you're intentional. You're purposeful. You're, you're thinking about what you're doing. Albert Barnes, I'm going to read to you a little bit of a lengthier quote, and I know you'll forgive me for that, um, but Albert Barnes has a really good uh, statement on uh, this verse, and I want to read it to you. Um, he's talking about Paul uh, saying, you know, that he's not boxing the air. And Albert Barnes in his commentary says this, Every blow that he struck told... Uh, And he did not waste his energies on that which would produce no result. He did not strive with rash, ill-advised, uncertain blows, but all of his efforts were directed, we might say funneled, with good account to the grand purpose of subjugating his enemy's sin and the corrupt desires of the flesh and bringing everything into captivity to God. Much can be learned from this, or may be learned from this, Many an effort of Christians is merely beating the air. The energy is expended for naught. There is a want of wisdom or skill or perseverance. There's a failure of plan or there's a mistake in regard to what is to be done and what should be done. There is often among Christians very little aim or object or or goal. There is no plan and the efforts are wasted, scattered, inefficient efforts, so that at the close of life, many a man, think about this, at the close of life, many a man may say that he has spent his ministry or his Christian course mainly or entirely in beating the air. May that not be said of us. Besides many, a one sets up a man of straws, a straw man argument, and fights that. He fancies error and heresy in others and opposes that. He becomes a heresy hunter, or he opposes some irregularity in religion that if left alone would die of itself, or he fixes all his attention on some minor evil and devotes his life to the destruction of that alone. Straining out uh, a gnat and swallowing a camel, in other words. When death comes, he may never have struck a blow at one of the real and dangerous enemies of the gospel. And the simple record on the tombstone of many a minister and many a private Christian might be, here lies one who spent his life in beating the air. May that not be said of us. May our tombstones not say, here lies one who spent his life beating the air. And I will say, as I said at the beginning, do not neutralize this text. Do not take the teeth out of this. Do not think I could just go on and it doesn't matter. It matters. It's important. Christ 
our Lord has said so. This is another way of saying that everything that the Christian does must be purposeful. We might say it another way. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Be purposeful in your life, in your interactions, in your pursuits. I'm not saying put off recreation. Okay? I'm not saying cancel all of your vacations. Recreation, vacation, it is a good gift from God. But use that purposefully too. Use that with intentionality. Be thoughtful about what you're doing to the glory of God. How do we accomplish this? Well, verse 27 tells us how we do this. And the final verse says this, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. The first observation to make in this verse is that Paul is extremely aware of human depravity. He knows that temptations come from outside, but he also is acutely aware that temptations come from within. Yes, we need to fight the sin outside, but he says, I discipline what? My body. I discipline my body. Paul is fighting himself, his own body, the source of his own sin. John MacArthur observes and says this, Most people, including many Christians, are instead slaves to their bodies. Their bodies tell their minds what to do. Their bodies decide when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to sleep and get up, and so on. An athlete cannot allow that. Athletes don't allow it to happen. Neither should we as Christians. Paul recognizes that he can be a slave to himself, to his own body. He recognizes that his appetites can rule him. It would be helpful here to distinguish uh, the Bible typically gives us three um, avenues of sin, sources of sin. You have the world, the flesh, and the, the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And I want to share with us the importance of recognizing all three of those. Charismatics tend to concern concern themselves only with one of these three. Which one is it? The devil, okay? We need to rebuke the demon of anxiety. We need to rebuke the, the demon of depression. We need to rebuke the demon of slothfulness. What does that do? What does that do to a person who's told, someone, someone says, I'm depressed, or I'm anxious, or I'm lazy, or whatever, and they say, we need to rebuke the demon of that. What does that do? It tells me that I'm totally not responsible for anything at all. It's totally outside of me. That's kind of just, that's really comforting, isn't it? That's really nice. I, none of the bad things I do are my fault. Praise the Lord for that. <laughs> okay? That's, that's the problem with having a collapsed view of sin. Is that, oh, it only comes from outside and I'm not accountable in any way. They tend to have a very high view of self. High view of self. Legalists, on the other hand have a tendency to concern themselves with also only one of these three. Any idea what the legalists concern themselves only with? 
not the flesh, the world. If I can just isolate myself, if I can just put enough barriers in my life, and then, and, and now I'm in this little bubble and the world can't touch me, now finally I'm safe. You know what the problem with that is? You're in that bubble with you. <laughs> and it's coming from within, okay? So our strategy to fight sin cannot only focus on fighting the devil, okay? It can't focus only on fighting uh, the world, okay? It has to include both of those, but it can't only include both of those. Now, the Reformed have a tendency to focus on sin as coming from the flesh or from the self. And uh, I'm going to defend... They come from all three, but I think there's a good reason to emphasize this. And that is because anything that comes from Satan or anything that does come from the world does have to come through myself. So 100% of my sin, 100% of it, I am accountable for. I may have been influenced or tempted by something without, but I'm accountable for 100% of it. Satan is not accountable for 100% of my sin. The world is not accountable for 100% of my sin. I'm accountable for 100% of my sin. I do need to recognize the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three. But I also have to recognize that my flesh is the gate that all of it comes through. And this is why Paul puts so much of his focus and his emphasis on beating himself. I discipline myself because all of it has to come through here at some point. I have to consent to it at some point. And so I put all of my ammunition aimed at myself. And he does this because he recognizes that teaching other people to obey is not the same as obeying himself. He says, lest after preaching to others, I should be disqualified. There, there is nothing in and of itself that helps me personally to preach in this way. Like, I'm, if I am a hypocrite, then I'm a hypocrite, okay? It, this is what Paul is saying. I'm preaching to others, deny yourself, deny yourself, run to Christ, live, live this way, do this, do that. And if he goes home and does whatever he wants to, then that, it did him no good. And so this is an individual thing he's, he's saying. So where does all this leave us today? I want to conclude with four applications. Um, and the first application is going to have four subpoint applications, okay? But I, not, I didn't put the subpoint ones up there because they didn't fit. So I'll get them to you afterwards if you want, okay? But the four main points are here. Number one is this. Exercise self-control through the intentional use of your time. No, I'm going to give you the four subpoints to this one. And there could be a billion subpoints to this one. I'm going to give you four of them. Number one, reject time-wasting pursuits like doom scrolling, excessive time given to entertainment like video games, movies, television, etc. Okay. Subpoint number two, be with your family. Be with your family instead of being on the phone. Okay. Actually be with them. Okay? Subpoint number three. Parent yourself by telling yourself no often. 
Tell yourself no. And subpoint number four, avoid the tyranny of the smartphone notification. Okay, if you're getting 75 notifications of a day, a day, silence that. Okay, these are we could go on and on and on. Okay, so that's point number one with four subpoints, and I'll get that to anyone who asks me afterwards. Number two, discipline yourself for the sake of living a streamlined Christian life. All things are lawful, fine. Not all things are helpful. You don't have to do this because your neighbor is doing it. You don't have to do this because other people are doing it. You, just, you don't have to. Number three, do not passively yield to your passions, but actively rule over them. Again, you will be ruled by something. Which, not whether. Which something will rule you, not whether something will rule you. And number four, be purposeful in your life and refuse to engage in fruitless pursuits. Now, how do you do this? I already gave you the, the key earlier. Titus 2.11. Grace teaches us to be self-disciplined. You say, what? Can you give me more than just that? Yes, I can, actually. We're doing this study at 9 a.m. on sanctification. Okay? And this is, what does it look like when grace impacts me so that I grow in obedience and holiness and self-discipline and all that kind of stuff? So, the next, is it nine, ten chapters? The next ten weeks is all going to be one giant application of today's message, if you want to look at it that way. Okay? So, read through that. There's some more books on the back there. I'd be happy to get those to you uh, and encourage you in that way. Thank you, God, for today and the word and your grace. Help us as we go to love you, to honor you. In Christ's name, amen.